We get to take a little break from issue one at the top of the podcast today. We're going back to HB6. It's Today in Ohio, the news podcast discussion from Cleveland.com and The Plain Dealer. I'm Chris Quinn. I'm here with Lisa Garvin, Layla Atassi, and Laura Johnston. And Layla is up first with the U.S. Attorney's inexcusable failure to use the overwhelming evidence in its hands to charge the former leaders of First Energy with bribing state officials in the HB6 scandal. It looks like Dave Yost might think the company has gotten off easy, and that's despite paying a mammoth fine after pleading guilty. Layla, what is Yost's office doing now? Well, Yost is sending his Ohio Organized Crime Investigations Commission after them, it seems. In a, in a financial report filed Monday, First Energy disclosed that they received a subpoena on June 29th from the commission. The company said until then they were unaware of this investigation. And a spokeswoman told reporter Jake Zuckerman the company believes that the investigation is in an early stage. She also suggested that the deferred prosecution agreement and the fine should be enough for First Energy to have shown has taken full responsibility for for what it did in this case. A spokeswoman for Yoast wouldn't talk at all about the investigation. In fact, she she wouldn't even confirm its existence because these things are so super top secret under state law. Well, good for them for for following state law, but it's great if they're going on a RICO case for this. We're first energy, Chuck Jones. Chuck Jones engineered the biggest bribery scandal ever. The Mm -hmm. evidence Mm -hmm. is clear what we have so far. I cannot for the life of me understand why the U.S. Attorney's Office has not gotten these indictments. They they proved their case already. And I I don't know, is is this one where people are bought off? Are they afraid of powerful people? The fact that Chuck Jones remains a free man, what, two and a half years in? It's ridiculous. I mean, this is bad stuff that he did. If if Yost's office puts together a RICO case that swallows them all up, good for them because somebody needs to hold the bribers to account. We also have Sam Randazzo. He took millions of dollars. I mean, it's it's in the public record in court, millions of dollars in bribes when he was running the uh, the utilities commission, and he's a free man. I just don't get it. Right, and I mean, Yost intends to run for governor, so he can't just let First Energy skate, right? Voters hate that. So it, I guess even though this this investigation is so top secret and they can't discuss it or even confirm that it's it's ongoing, it's it's it bodes well for Yost that First Energy mentioned this in their financial report. <laughs> yeah, I just just for me, the the it seems like the people that pay the bribes the big guys often get off. I mean, first energy took the fall and pleaded guilty, but the people making the decisions without whom there'd be no bribery scandal remain free. I hope Yost's action here is aimed at rectifying that because this is what costs government the faith of the people. If these guys get off, nobody believes the justice system is fair, right? I mean, Larry Householder's going away for a long time for taking the bribes and the people that paid the bribes, scot-free, live in large. When they were so arrogant, too. I mean, all the text messages that we saw, they were like, screw anybody who isn't us. It's like, okay. I know, I know. It's And that that is so defeatist to anybody that wants to believe in justice and the system of the courts. The, the, US, the original U.S. attorney on this case, Dave DeVillers, was, was aggressive and doing a great job. The guy who's in charge now 
is really a bozo. This is not acceptable. The charges should be in there. The court should be proceeding. Justice should not take this long. And we keep talking about dark money and all, you know, the issue one and the abortion race, all of these things. And if you're a company and you're like, well, First Energy, like they had to pay a fine, but it's worth a try. I mean, like if there's mm-hmm. no punishment for the top officials, then what's to stop another company from finding another elected official to bribe? At least in the Northern District during the county corruption case, everybody that was implicated as paying bribes got got charged. Mm-hmm. Ann Rowland didn't let anybody off the hook. She was an equal, she believed in equal justice, and that's what needs to happen here. You're listening to Today in Ohio. Okay, after the break, back to issue one. Lisa, has the surprising surge in early voting continued in issue one? The August 8th ballot question that would take away the power of the voters to change their constitution. The clock is ticking. Yeah, and the surge continues through early voting. As a matter of fact, it's approaching total turnout in some areas. So through July 28th, 388,000 people voted early. That's more than double the early voting numbers for the May 2022 primary. And it's five times the early voting in that second primary that we had in August of last year for the state legislature. And the gap between suburban and uh, suburban, urban and rural counties is closing, but it still remains very strong in the urban counties. So the urban counties, of which there are nine, including Cuyahoga, there are 179,032 votes. That's more, that's four times higher than it was last May. Um, In the suburbs, also four times higher, 52,706 early votes have been cast. And in rural counties, which is actually most of Ohio, 73 counties are considered rural, numbers are really high there too. I mean, 142,566 early votes in rural counties, that's three times higher than last year. Cuyahoga County, um, apparently there have been 74,524 requested absentee ballots in Cuyahoga. Over 41,700 of those have been returned. And then there have been about 10,245 in-person votes in Cuyahoga County so far. Early voting goes through Monday, I believe. I was one of the early voters. What What is odd is there's a presumption in some circles that the rural votes are yes. And I've heard from a lot of conservatives who are no's because they recognize this is an idiotic pro- proposition that you're you're devaluing the voter and concentrating power in the hands of gerrymandered legislators. And and smart people know, yeah, the Republicans are in charge now, but the pendulum does swing eventually. And if you approve this, you won't have recourse against an out of control legislature. I don't know. It's sad if it's working because the campaign for issue one is a total lie. It's about, you know, we're protecting the constitution from outside interests and they're not, they're, they're trying to stop the voter in Ohio from mattering. They're protecting the constitution from the voters who are supposed to be in charge. But if that lie is working, you know, the future of Ohio is dim. Well, and I've told a couple of friends who wanted to vote yes on issue one, and they may still, I said, okay, just switch parties. If the Democrats were in control and they were trying to push issue one, would you vote yes? Yeah, 
I know. Look, look, it's universally a bad idea. And people keep sending me notes saying, you know, hey, the U.S. Constitution is hard to do. It's not the same. This is really the manual for state operations. If this was equal to the U.S. Constitution, we wouldn't need it because we're already covered by the U.S. Constitution. This is a completely different document. And it's really hard to change already. This is not something that you can change by whim. You have to do a lot of work to get it changed. And ultimately, the majority rules. This would be the end of that. One of my favorite ads is um, how, how issue one work would work in football. And it shows... Michigan uh, 41, uh, Ohio State 59, Michigan wins. <laughs> it's just a <laughs> perfect, perfect image of, of how this will work. It's a lopsided, idiotic move by Matt Huffman and Frank LaRose to cut off the power of the voter. You're listening to Today in Ohio. I cannot count how many times I've read a story about changes coming to the Ohio Turnpike Toll Collection and not understood it. Do we finally have a clear vision of the very confusing approach the Turnpike is taking? Laura, I feel like it might be better off if we had everybody spin a roulette wheel when they entered the Turnpike to pick their fare, because the system they have makes no sense to me. Right. And I Now, reading Jeremy Pelser's story, I understand why we didn't understand all of the earlier stories, because this is really confusing. So... It's going to simplify driving the turnpike a little bit if you drive the entire 241 miles. My guess is most people aren't doing that unless they're truckers on a specific route. So for now, you are going to have to pay a flat fee toll when you enter the state from either direction, from the east gate or the west gate, from Indiana or Pennsylvania. And then for the first 50 or so miles... You're not going to have to pay any tolls when you get off. So they're getting rid of those toll plazas. However, after that, if you get off anywhere, you have to go through the toll plaza and you have to stop and pay. If you have Easy Pass, which I highly recommend everyone go get Easy Pass, then you won't have to stop when you enter the state, which is nice. That's something that does not happen now. But you're still going to have to go through a toll plaza when you leave, even if it's just 10 miles an hour in an easy pass lane, there's no way to get around driving through a toll booth. I don't know that the story answers this question. <laughs> what if I enter the first exit after the East Gate? Do I pay? No, I don't think you pay. There's so, so can... few people that use that section of the turnpike. They're saving money by not staffing it. Okay, so the, so if you don't come in on the gate, Mm -hmm. The first 50 miles on either side is free. Sure. Yes. Okay. Look, but but the, the, this, is, this is so confusing. How does anybody understand this? So you pay at the gate, you drive 50 miles, but then anytime after that, you start paying. How are people going to know that? It's just, I, I don't get it. Why don't they do what other states do and just make it easy pass and charge people for whatever they're using? It's bizarre that you'd have two completely distinct systems of payment. Who thought of this? I, mean, I don't. It's almost like they're on no. LSD, right? Let's let's design a, a, a toll system. I mean, I just don't get it. I, I saw the budget numbers and I could see how they're getting money. Mm -hmm. But this is more confusing than, you know. That's why I'm telling oh, people get the easy pass because then you never have to think about it, right? It's just taking it off. And you do get a discount if you use easy pass. It's like a dollar uh, cheaper entering the state if you use easy pass. So I don't understand why anyone wouldn't get it. I guess if you like never drive the turnpike, you're like, why? But you can use easy pass in most states. And when you drive through those other states, say Pennsylvania, which the Ohio turnpike is connected to, or Indiana, like 
it's much simpler and they even have license plate readers. So if you don't have it, they'll just bill you later. So that is a new part of the Ohio system. If you drive through an easy pass lane with a license plate, you will get billed, but it's, it's not simplifying the concept of the turnpike and the Ohio turnpike commission, which was created in I think 1947 is still in charge of this road. It's still a public road that is paid for with private fees. It actually was created before the interstate system. So they're the ones who came up with this. And I got to hand it to Jeremy. He tried really hard to get a lot of answers. He said that the spokesperson was one of the hardest he's ever had to deal with in getting answers. So I asked him to get a sit down with the CEO or director of the turnpike. And we want to solicit reader questions because I feel like if you drive this road, you have questions. I, I bet that in a future governor's race, this will be an issue that, that, that some, a candidate will run and say, I'm going to fix this idiotic turnpike because this is the dopiest system I ever heard of. It just doesn't make sense. We should make things much more simple. And we don't even know exactly when this is launching. They hope sometime this fall. But the reason we started the story is because I drove back from West Virginia in a section of the turnpike I normally never go on, the very eastern section. And there was a miles long backup for people trying to get out of Ohio because they're, and it was a Sunday evening and they were doing work on the, the, the plaza itself. So there are delays. The, the spokesman was like, they're temporary. It's like, okay, but that doesn't help when you're sitting in that delay. Or maybe the backup is because people are fleeing this crazy mixed up state and they don't want anything <laughs> to do it anymore. <laughs> Issue one. Anyway, read Jeremy's story if you want to make sense of it. My bet is that the spokesperson was difficult because they didn't understand it either. You're listening to Today in Ohio. All right, Layla, we've had all sorts of conversations about whether the jail will be on the Garfield site or not. We had some interesting votes this week about it. What's the current state? So the issue that was on the table Tuesday night at County Council was whether to pay the current owners of the preferred jail site in Garfield Heights up to $500,000 to take it off the market until the end of 2024 while the county decides whether to buy it. The upshot here is that council rejected it. (laughs) Some members said they still support buying the property, but they don't support the current proposal for how to pay for it, which is to extend the county sales tax for 40 years. They either want to see a shorter extension of the sales tax or they want voters to get to decide the question. So they encouraged County Executive Chris Ronane to resubmit his original legislation, which proposes the outright purchase of the Garfield Heights site, and then they'll make the decision about whether to go to voters. As Caitlin Durbin covered this meeting, it seemed to have kind of devolved into chaos because <laughs> council members kept changing their votes after they saw how their colleagues were voting. There was just a lot of ambivalence about this. Council President Purnell Jones was a part of that. He initially voted against it. Then he and Councilman Jack Schron changed their votes to yes, which tipped the scales in favor of the legislation. Both said that they support building a jail in Garfield Heights, but not the proposal to acquire the option to buy the land there. But then council called the roll again after they had some further discussion, and Jones and Schron voted no again. And the proposed amendment officially failed with a seven to four vote. Council members Michael Gallagher, Patrick Kelly, Dale Miller, and Marty Sweeney voted for it. I give Gallagher credit because he's one of the ones that really pushed the benzene site. I was very upset that it didn't go there. And the fact that he's now voting for this mm-hmm. seems to say to me that he cares about getting this done and he's putting aside the pettiness. 
Um, and my bet is that ultimately they do settle on the Garfield Heights site. It's the money that's the rub. I mean, Ronan is paying for what he said during the campaign about he would not increase the sales tax without a vote of the people. And they seem to be saying that. I, I, we have a story in the works that's going to answer this question, and I don't know how far off it is. But I keep thinking that if they wait until 2026, when all the money that's being used to pay for the convention center and the hotel becomes available, because that's going to be paid off, that could fund the jail. Mm -hmm. So buy the site now, do all your design work, and bond against those funding streams that are already there. Why do we need another tax? When's that story going to be ready, Layla? Oh, you're really putting me on the hot seat. <laughs> um, well, uh, they have been, you know, we're, Caitlin Durbin and, and Courtney Astolfi have been putting this one together, and they've been working on it, but also, you know, juggling a whole bunch of other stuff. Uh, so it's it's coming together. I promise. Yeah, I can't I can't call either of them slackers for sure. So <laughs> right? but we do need to get it. I'm hearing questions about it. And that might help people understand, is there any capacity? I, I don't know. But maybe they've already committed the funding streams that are being used for the convention center and the hotel for when those are paid off. Maybe that's going to the um, arena. I, I don't recall, but we need to figure it out. You're listening to Today in Ohio. Lisa, according to Mike DeWine, what is the state of Ohio's rivers? It's looking pretty good. The 2020-2021 survey of rivers by the Ohio Environmental Protection Association found that 86% of the 1,372 miles of river examined met state and federal water quality standards. Huge improvement from 1987 when it was only 18%. EPA senior scientist Bob Miltner says back then, some rivers had no fish at all and some had like deformed fish with no fins. And he said, we don't see that kind of stuff anymore. The study looked at water quality, sediment chemistry, and fish and wildlife health. Cuyahoga River improved the most. Um, all of the stretch from Akron to Lake Erie is in compliance. None of it was in compliance in 1987. And uh, Miltner says this is largely due to improvements to the Akron sewer and stormwater system, and it had a major impact on cleaning up the river. The only river that declined in quality was the Mohican River in east central Ohio. They're suffering from agricultural runoff and sediment buildup. But they did find that rivers are warming up. So in the 1980s, the average temperature of our rivers in Ohio was 20.5 degrees Celsius. It's now up three degrees, almost three degrees to 23.2% Celsius. And the state H2O program, which DeWine advocated, they wanted to reach a 40% reduction in phosphorus runoff by 2025, but Miltner says that is unlikely to happen. Right, you're using metric system here. I don't know what that, those temperatures are, but, but it's warmer. I get it. I get it. Yeah, I think that would be like upper 70s, low 80s. It's better than Florida, where it's over 100 outside of the Keys. Uh, it's remarkable that none of that part of the Cuyahoga met it, and now all of it does. I imagine that removal of some dams is helping, too, because we had dams blocking aquatic life, and now we're, we're removing them. So it's going to be, I don't know, Laura, are you able to kayak all the way from Akron to the mouth of the river? Yep. Only if you want to go over the falls in Cuyahoga Falls. And I am not that kind of kayaker. <laughs> nope. Um, they removed the Brexville Dam. So that was a big thing for kayakers to get there. So, yeah, they've been working on these areas of concern in places like the Cuyahoga River and the Ashtabula River for years. And they're no longer being used for so much industrial 
you know, uses anymore. So I think that's one reason. I can't believe it took till 2023 to have this press conference about a survey in 2020. Well, (laughs) pandemic. You didn't want to go out in public, I guess. You're listening to Today in Ohio. What is the only Northeast Ohio company to make the Fortune 500 global list of the world's biggest companies? Laura, it's not the one that I would have thought. No, I, this made sense to me. It's progressive. It would have. It, it probably has one of the world's most recognizable ad campaigns at this point, too, because who doesn't love flow? But Mayfield-based progressive, which we've talked about recently, is a lot of work from home right now, has $49.8 billion in revenue. It was 287th in the world, 88th on the 2023 Fortune 500 list. Uh, other companies that made the Fort- the Fortune 500 list within the country includes Cardinal Health, Marathon Petroleum, Kroger, Procter & Gamble, and Nationwide. But only one is on the world's list. Yeah, and <laughs> it's got a much shrinking headquarters in Northeast Ohio, although obviously those people all still work for them. I really do wonder how much flow has caused them to grow because people really like her and their ads are everywhere. Yeah, maybe. I don't know. It's interesting that this news comes out in the same week we were talking about or within a week of talking about their shrinking footprint in Mayfield. And we will have a story coming soon on Mayfield's finances with with Progressive switching to a lot of work from home. Okay, you're listening to Today in Ohio. I want to go back to the meeting that we talked about earlier because there was another element we didn't discuss Marty Sweeney, former city council president in Cleveland, now a county council member, took a fairly extraordinary step based on the dysfunction that we discussed. Yeah, as, as we said earlier, we saw this crazy behavior at, at this week's county council meeting regarding whether to buy or at least preserve the option to buy that site in Garfield Heights for the jail with all that the flip-flopping on votes. And most notably was Council President Purnell Jones, who changed his vote a couple times and then ultimately voted against it. Well, this really rankled Councilman Marty Sweeney. He is now calling upon Jones to resign as council president. He said Jones's public ambivalence on the legislation that was under consideration showed an absolute lack of leadership. He said he expects more from council leadership. He criticized Jones for at one point calling it his final decision to vote in favor of the Garfield Heights location, adding that, quote, that that is where I was from the beginning and I will remain there, but later switching his vote to a no after he saw how his colleagues were going to vote. So that said, Marty Sweeney appears to have zero support for this attempted coup. <laughs> Reporter Caitlin Durbin polled the group and found that the rest of them still support Jones and he's not going to step down. I you know, we've speculated frequently on this podcast that Marty Sweeney's ultimate goal is to be council president. I mean, he's a very good operator. He's good at reading tea leaves. I'm not sure this is part of that, though. This was an embarrassing display. And by making that call for Purnell Jones to step down, he may not be seeking Purnell Jones to step down. He may be trying to put up guardrails and say, let's not look like buffoons. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Because Chris Ronane has come in with a plan. And we know we need a new jail. And this we talk about the the dysfunction on that council all the time and Sweeney understands the taxpayers don't like that so maybe by saying hey I'm calling for you to step down 
it guides everybody in the right direction ultimately. Right. I mean, Jones is in a sticky spot here because Garfield Heights is in his district and the city officials there want the jail. But he also represents part of Cleveland, which could, you know, would lose some some tax revenue by losing that facility. So I see why he is having a he's grappling with this this decision. But on the other hand, when do you see legislation hit the floor like that with so much ambivalence? I, I usually but, they're so they spend so much time making up their mind before they go to a vote. I just and and Sweeney said, I've never seen anything like this in my decades in in uh, government. And I agree. I, I've never seen anything like that either. Right. And leaders lead. Instead of this waffling back and forth, Pernell Jones should be figuring out which direction they, they should go. And this, it shouldn't happen like this. And look, let's face it, it's a good site. So let's, let's just agree, buy the land now, and then we'll figure out how we're going to pay for it later. But if they don't get the site now, they could lose it. And then there isn't really a strong alternative. This was an ugly display. And I think that's why Sweeney raised his hand. Yeah. Ultimately, I still think he wants to be council president, but that's not what he was doing. I here. mean, Jones says he supports putting the jail in Garfield, but said he won't vote before the Garfield Heights community has an opportunity to express their wishes. And they have a meeting scheduled for August 19th. So then why did he, yeah. <laughs> why, why even bring this to a vote? Right. Just table right. it he, for a couple more weeks until it's ripe until you have all the information. It just seemed completely disorganized. And don't waffle. Make up your mind. Yeah. Right. You're listening to Today in Ohio. We did not talk about this earlier in the week, in part because we were busy with other news and in part because we take it for granted. We shouldn't do that. It is our biggest employer. Lisa, what distinction did the Cleveland Clinic claim again this year? The U.S. News and World Report annual ranking of hospitals found Cleveland Clinic number one nationwide for cardiology and heart surgery for the 29th year in a row. And the Cleveland Clinic was also ranked among the top 50 hospitals in 12 of 15 specialties. In the top 10 were urology, number two, rheumatology, number three, OBGYN at six, and also geriatrics, uh, gastroenterology at number eight, and cancer at number 10. And that's more than any other Ohio hospital. Uh, University Hospitals of Cleveland was found number 39 in cancer care, but it's new this year. So U.S. News and World Report used to rank the best hospitals overall. They no longer do that. So what they do is they name 22 hospitals to the U.S. News Honor Roll. Cleveland Clinic is the only Ohio hospital named to the Honor Roll. And, uh, you know, some people have started to question these rankings. Penn Medicine will stop submitting data to U.S. News. They said it might encourage abandonment of patient care in urban areas because it might impact the hospital's ranking negatively. Yeah, I was surprised they got rid of the the ranking, but this must be their way of keeping people submitting their information. The, the fact that the Cleveland Clinic remains number one in heart care for nearly three decades now, at some point, do you just retire the category? It's 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 what an achievement for our local employer right. uh, year after year after year. They're excellent for heart care. You're listening to Today in Ohio. The last we heard of RTA's waterfront train line, it was closed because of dangers from a bridge. 
We thought that was a dodge, a cheap reason to close down a line that has never lived up to its promise while costing the transit agency a lot of money. But Laura, it's coming back. How and why? Yeah, they said two years, and it's been almost exactly two years. So officials say it'll be open for every regular season Browns home game starting September 10th. It's been closed since September 2021. There was that safety bridge uh, spanning Front Street and the Norfolk Southern tracks at the north end of Flats East Bank. Um, but, I, I mean, great. I'm, gr- I'm glad it's open for for Browns games because it's not really used any other time. If you ever saw it, you're like, it's like a ghost train. It just like runs. There's no one on it. The RTA had assigned $6 million for federal funding toward the rehabilitation of the bridge. We don't actually know the final tally of the cost, but I did not realize that this waterfront line opened in 1996 as a legacy project for the bicentennial of the city. And it's an extension of the blue and green lines, though not every blue and green train continues past Tower City onto this waterfront route, but they'll still do some various upgrades on days when trains are not running. But again, at least it'll be there for the Browns game, which is the only time people use it. It was so embarrassing back in the early days that they actually put silhouettes of people in the windows to make it look like (laughs) there were people in it. On the other hand, if we finally do a lakefront plan and develop the full lakefront, you could extend that line a little bit further. And I, I imagine that would be a way for people to get there. Would they maybe even put kayak racks on yeah. it or something? <laughs> you know, they have the bike racks on the front of the buses. You could put a kayak rack on the back, although you'd have to get the kayaks to, to <laughs> the trains in the first place. But um, actually, that is a good point, And that would really provide some nice access to the water. Uh, and people might use it because I think parking is going to be horrendous. Right. You'd have to extend it a little bit because it doesn't go far enough. It's close, though. I mean, it wouldn't take much to get that to be a uh, fully functioning waterfront line. But you can bring your inner tubes on the train. (laughs) All right. That's it for today in Ohio for Thursday. Thank you, Lisa. Thank you, Layla. Thank you, Laura. Thanks, everybody who listens to this podcast.